Today we're going to be in Luke 23. We saw in detail previously the characters of Judas and also Herod, as well as Peter and some others in these last few hours, these last few moments prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Today we're going to talk a little bit about two men that meet Jesus for the first and last times, Pontius Pilate and Simon the Cyrenian. We're also going to talk about Barabbas, though it's not clear from the scripture if they actually had a, an encounter, but you know, we're going to mention him also. Starting with Luke 23 and verse 13. It says, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing worthy of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. A little bit about Pontius Pilate. We had talked to him. Talked to him. We didn't talk to him. We talked about him sometime earlier. Uh, some history about him. He was a military man of the equestrian order, turned governor of Judea. He's a historical figure. You can look in the encyclopedia and learn more about Pontius Pilate. He was the fifth Roman to rule after Herod Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great. After his uh, incompetent rule, they removed him and started putting Romans into the Judean area. Uh, Pilate ruled from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, and he was known for his cruelty and also his disdain for the Jewish religion. He had many skirmishes with the Jews, uh, which led to civil unrest, which led to him being admonished by the Roman hierarchy prior to this whole trial with Jesus. So I'm kind of setting the stage for you a little bit. Eventually, he was recalled to Rome in A.D. 36, a few years after the crucifixion, and then he disappears from history. In verse 16, it says, he says, I will chastise him and release him. Pilate speaking of Jesus. Chastise is not a stern warning. If you look it up in the dictionary, there's different um, meanings for the word chastise, but if you go into the original language, chastise and release was a legal beating. And actually, I'm going to read to you something about, and we're going to go into this more next week when we talk in details about the crucifixion. But there's an article, or actually a whole um, examination of the crucifixion through the Bible, through historical, and through medical sources. And this actually showed up in the Journal of the American Medical Association in volume 256. I'm just going to read about the scourging practices that took place. It says, flogging was illegal preliminary to every Roman execution, and only women and Roman senators or soldiers, except in the case of desertion, were exempt. The usual instrument was a short whip, flagrum or flagellum, with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at intervals. Occasionally, staves also were used. For scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to an upright post. The backs, buttocks, and legs were flogged either by two soldiers called lictors or by one who alternated positions. The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the lictors and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. After the scourging, the soldiers often taunted their victim. We see that in the biblical account. 
As the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of blood loss may well have been may well have determined how long the victim would survive on the cross. According to Roman procedure, the beatings were even worse, again, prior to crucifixion. And what's, what happened with the beatings is there's medical conditions called hypovolemic shock, orthostatic hypotension, and all that means is blood loss, and so much blood loss that you actually have low blood pressure, and any movement, especially getting up, would cause a drop in blood pressure. So there's all, it's, it's all medically uh, studied, it's historically been looked at. Romans have uh, historical pieces of information that we can still read today. Uh, and, and again, why did they do this? Because, think about it, it's a military police type of organization, the soldiers, and when they would crucify their victims, one, two, three, ten, however many at one time, they had to pay overtime for these soldiers to watch the people on the cross and wait out hours and hours and hours until they expired. So to cut down on manpower, just think about this. They would torture the person to the point just before they would die, and when they put them up on the, on the, uh, on the crucifix, what would happen is they would die usually within a matter of hours so that the Romans could move on to other things that they had to do. I like to mix history with a whole bunch of physical sciences and stuff just to show that the Bible is true. I mean, there's just so much science behind this. But anyway, if Pilate de deemed Jesus innocent, why the beatings? What you start to see is Pilate start to waver in the face of political pressure. It appears from here that Pilate made his decision, but we see that he changes his mind. Verse 18. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who has been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. He's repeating himself. This is what I'm going to do. However, an acquitted innocent man is going to get a beating, according to Pilate. Verse, uh, what I want to do is, now I want to turn to John 18, okay? Move to the Gospel of John, chapter 18, starting with verse 33. And I want to give you a little bit more of the details. John talks a little bit about more of the details of the exchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. Verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, 
that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I'll stop there. Jesus is a king, but his servants won't fight. He's got servants. Um, you know, Jesus said previously that I could call 12 legions of angels right now to stop this whole arrest procedure, and he didn't do it. So he's got his servants. He's got his disciples, but really he's also got heavenly servants that he's not going to use. At this point in time, between Jesus's, you know, in, into the world, all the way up into Revelation 19, Christians aren't supposed to overthrow the government. That's not what we're supposed to do. Revelation 19 is a different story. When the Lord comes and returns to earth and his saints are following behind him, uh, remember the marriage supper, the rapture takes place, the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, and it's all in order because John says, then I saw, then I saw, so it's a chronological issue. Then in uh, chapter 19 in Revelation, the door of heaven opens for a second time. Jesus comes on a white horse, okay? His, he's got several crowns. He's got a robe dipped in blood. His eyes are like flames of fire. And he's got King of King and Lord, Lord of Lords written on his thigh. And he comes with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth to smite the nations. That's the time when he and his servants will fight. But it's not in this time period. Especially along with, if you look at what happened with Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter went to pull the sword again to try to uh, defend Jesus, and Jesus had put that sword in the sheath. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So what you see is between all the teachings, this should dispel any myth that's propagated in the media that fundamental Christians want to take over the government. Because really, if we're, I'm a fundamental Christian. It means I believe in the fundamental, fundamentals of my faith, of what the Scripture teaches me. But I don't want to take over the government. I work for the government. It would be bad for my paycheck, right? But what you see is um, there are groups, and in law enforcement we call them Christian identity groups, that actually identify with Christianity and set a bad example for Christianity, and one of their motives is to overthrow the government. But again, there's no basis for that in Scripture. They're totally missing the point here. Verse 38, it says, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus just got done speaking about truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So he says something to Jesus, he responds to them, and then he speaks to the crowd. Well, I'm going to help punch his pilot a little bit, because if you look up truth in the dictionary, basically it's a conformity with facts and reality. The facts and reality we understand is the facts and reality that in the temporal world that we live in and also the spiritual world that exists. And all those facts and reality is the basis, uh, or the basis of it is what God has created. He also created physical laws uh, in the universe, and he set them in motion, such as gravity. You can say, I don't believe in gravity. But if you're on a four-story building and you're on the roof, and you say, I don't believe in gravity, I don't believe in gravity, and you step off that roof, you will fall at the rate of 9.8 meters per second squared, or in the English measurements, 32 feet per second squared. You will find out really quick that gravity exists. You can't deny that. Unfortunately, though, where, where am I going? We live in an age of relativism, pluralism, dualism. My truth and your truth may be vastly different, but they hold equal weight. That's where we're going in the world when it comes to spirituality. This is what I believe, this is what you believe, but they're vastly different and opposing, but hey, it's okay. It's pluralism. I have a problem with that, because if you take that same logic and put that into our economy, what happens? If I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you say it equals 5,000, and you say it equals 3 million, and that's what we live by, 
our economy is going to crash. We're going to go back to planting seeds and trying to live off the land because the banks are going to crash. There's going to be no order there because nothing is, there's, not, there's no truth. You see what I'm saying? Or if you take the same principle and say you, you take a several thousand ton plane piece of metal and put it in the air, what keeps it in the air is thrust, um, aerodynamics, Bernoulli's principle. These are principles. If, you, if you're up in the air with an airplane and you shut the thrusters off and you just kind of flap, flap the flaps wherever you want, that thing is going to come down. So why would we not apply uh, pluralism and dualism to mathematics, the economy, and uh, engineering, but we apply it to something far more important, and that's the eternal? Because this life is but a drop in the bucket. Think about George Washington. He was on the earth, what, for 60, died at 61, 62? And uh, he, wherever he is now, he's been there a lot longer than he's been on this earth. Look at the Caesars. Not a lot of hope for these guys, but maybe they lived 60 years old, 70 years old, and, and they've been gone for more than 2,000 years. Where are they right now? Wherever they are, they're spending far more time there than they did on the planet. So we need to find the truth, especially when it comes to spiritual issues. Verse 19, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 19 in John. Switch over to that. We'll go to uh, verse 7. It says, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. I think what appealed to Pilate being a military man and probably being in battle was the fact that, if you think about this, how many people came before Pilate? Uh, they could be crucified, and he's right. He had the power in the temporal world over man to pardon somebody or not pardon somebody. How many men do you think came before Pilate and got down on their knees and held his feet and begged him, please, I don't want to be crucified? Time after time after time, people begged for their lives. Jesus comes in and he's like, you wouldn't have any power for, over me unless it was given to you from above. So I think something started to appeal to Pilate. Okay? But, and we're going to show a little bit later how he had so many issues coming in and he was really confused at this point. Verse uh, 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Whatever he felt, and I'm sure Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent, but the fear of Caesar and the fear of his position certainly took precedence over what was right and what was wrong. We see that a lot in today's world. Promotion is so much more important than proper behavior towards your coworkers. Um, promotion time in most businesses or organizations 
You, you have to be careful what you say. Somebody might run to the head of the corporation to try to get a little edge on that uh, promotion by ratting you out. So people start to get funny when it comes to their careers, when it comes to money, and they kind of lose that the right and wrong uh, aspect of, of what they should have. One more verse, Matthew 27:19. a little bit more detail here. Just one verse. While he, meaning Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So now you have the voice of his wife. And back to Luke 23. Verse uh, 23. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. Crucify him, crucify him. The voices of mob mentality prevailed. How tragic. It's a sad day when that happens, but you know what? Are we any more civilized today? Think about it. In the age of instantaneous news reporting, there's so much rushing to judgment. There's so much mob mentality. You see so many issues with so many people happening at the same time on the blogs, on TV, everywhere. Instantaneous news reporting. I thought about a a case that was controversial. Um, The Kobe Bryant. Remember the basketball player who was accused of rape? And people would come to me and say, do you think Kobe did it? And I said, well... There were two people in that hotel room, and one of them wasn't me. So I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not going to rush to judgment. Let it play out and see what happens. But I put a little biblical spin on it, and I said this. If Kobe left that day, I believe God gave this to me because I couldn't think of this on myself, but I said if, if Kobe Bryant left that day and went on a trip and went to a hotel room, and he said in his heart, I'm going to be faithful to my wife, I said he wouldn't be in the mess he's in right now. Think about that. So whether he did it or not, I don't know. But you can apply biblical principles to certainly the behavior. Also, the the recent thing with the Duke lacrosse players. Now, these guys engaged in definitely ungodly behavior, uh, hedonistic behavior. Uh, But I guess they found that uh, the the evidence showed that they didn't do it. Uh, Again, people are saying they did it, they didn't do it. I I try not to weigh in on that stuff anymore because I don't know I wasn't there. I don't have the facts. But it happens all the time, even uh, whether it's the military or the police that get into a fatal shooting or something questionable. The sharks smell the blood in the water, and they all start surrounding the, the story. We don't even wait for indictments. We don't wait for the facts to come in. We just pounce on people in our society. We're a society that still rushes to judgment. I say this, take a breath. Turn off your TV and read your Bible. I mean, I look at it this way. If people put as much time studying God's word as they did minding everybody else's business, wouldn't this this place be a better society? I'll say it again. If people put as much time studying God's word as they did minding everyone else's business, uh, who's the father of Anna Nicole's baby, you can't watch legitimate news without that coming up again. You know, people, it's just crazy. But getting back to this, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, I think, sums it up here. Three things to do. He says, Paul says, mind your own business, 
lead a quiet life and work. If we're working and we're not being lazy and we're doing something and we're minding our own business and we can lead a quiet life, you know what? Supply and demand. Maybe they'll start putting real news out there. I read 24 again. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. When you're not guided by foundations set forth in God's word, you will have instability and you will make poor decisions. Pilate's dilemma. Okay, I'm going to be Pilate. And he's hearing all the voices. His wife, she says to him, have nothing to do with that just man. I've suffered many things in a dream. He hears the voice of the religious leaders. If you don't crucify this guy who's opposing Caesar and competing with him, you're no friend to Caesar. The other voice, he's thinking about Rome telling him, Pilate, you're a pretty harsh leader. If you keep leading this harshly and cause more uprisings, you know, you're going to get the boot. And his own men, his own men probably looked at him and said, you know, the voices of his men. Pilate, you've got to make a decision. How, do we, how can we follow a, a leader that can't make his own decisions? So he's, Pilate's got all these voices in his head, in a sense. He heard a lot of voices that they, even maybe the voice in his own heart, knowing he's been around the block a few times, he's a military man, he probably knew in his heart that Jesus was innocent. Another voice to be added to it. But there was one voice that he lacked, and that was the voice of God. Now, don't get me wrong, people, everyone wants to blame somebody for crucifying Jesus. Well, the Bible foretold it. There's nobody to blame. There's nobody to hold a grudge against. It had to be. Jesus said it had to be. He spoke many times about it before it actually happened. So what happens, this man does, is he starts to break under the weight of pressure. And he weasels out of the decision by washing his hands as a symbolic gesture that he was innocent of the consequences. Although washing your hands when giving an order like that doesn't, doesn't take away or assuage your responsibility. It reminds me of the defense used by the concentration camp guards in World War II. Most of them said, Nuremberg trials, we were just following orders. You know, um, we had no choice. We had to wash our hands of it. You know what? We all have choices. You don't have to do something like that, that horrific. We all have choices. Even Ravi Zacharias, to switch gears a little bit, uh, some of you know Ravi Zacharias did a great study on the effects of the man of God when subjected to pressures of fame and public recognition. There's a few times that I actually uh, downloaded the transcripts, the transcripts from the Larry King show. And you'd be surprised how many popular evangelists have spoken false doctrine on the Larry King show because when he was asked the question about spiritual matters and the gospel and hell, they looked into that camera and they realized millions of people were hearing what they had to say, and they watered down the message of the gospel. Outright false doctrine. So people, people do bend under pressure. And we all at times face pressure from others to make the wrong decision. Or people try to manipulate us into their own desires. I mean, I even get it too as a pastor. People can be very forceful. You should do this, and you should do that. Bob can come up to me and say, Joe, I heard from the Lord. And he told me, as a pastor, you should go in this direction with, with the church. And Frank can come up to me and say, Joe, I heard from the Lord, and you should go in this direction as a pastor when it comes to leading the church. But Bob and Frank asked me to do two things that are totally contradictory. Well, somebody didn't hear from the Lord, right? And I do take suggestions, and uh, I actually have implemented a lot of good suggestions, but I can't move with the capriciousness of other people. 
When Jesus spoke about John the Baptist, he said, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? You know, the reeds, they're so pretty in the marshes. When the wind blows, they all blow together. And when the wind blows this way, they all blow back. He said, you're not going to see that with John the Baptist. But I got to tell you, one time really I felt the closest where I really felt a lot of pressure. And I'll just be transparent and I'll share this with you. Uh, Some months back we had a a guest speaker who spoke on a Wednesday night. Uh, He was from Jews for Jesus. He was a Jewish man that grew up and wanted to tell his testimony about how he came to Christ. Well, they asked me, can we, can we um, put it you know, in the local paper so that Jewish people could come out and hear it? And I said, yeah, no problem. Well, apparently, uh, under you know, the rumblings on the ground, you didn't know about this, but I did. It came back to me that some of the more uh, maybe radical rabbis in the area, and there wasn't a lot of them, they wanted to protest this. They were going to go in front of the, the venue and start protesting. And I'm starting to think, oh, this is not good. I really don't need this headache. But, uh, you know, it, it was pressure on me. But you know what? In the end, I actually met with the guys and said, listen, the guy has the right to free speech. If you want to hear his testimony, come, come in and listen. It's not anti-Semitic. He's Jewish. But anyway, they didn't come in and the thing died down. But I tell you what, we all, I'd like to sit here and say to, to you, I'm a strong man. We all want to be strong men. But there are times that I feel pressure. But you know what? You've got to do the right thing. When there's pressure, you've got to, try, you've got to listen to the voice of God. Now, going back to Pilate, you see, you see Pilate, okay, and he's, again, he's got nothing to choose from. He's got his wife, he's got his men, he's got Caesar, he's got um, all these religious leaders, and he doesn't know what to choose from, right? Uh, what did he choose? I could see him on Jeopardy saying, Alex, I'll take self-preservation for 500. And that's what he did. He chose self-preservation. Now, we as Christians, it's a little bit of a different story. I'll use this chair. So you see, Pilate had nothing to stand on. We as believers have, this represents the foundation of God and God's word. So as a believer, hopefully I don't fall. As a believer, you stand on the word of God, right? And when the voice of your friends come and the voice of your peers come and political pressure and all these voices, right? You can always choose this. You can always stand on the word of God. Now, as believers, do we always choose this? No, I don't always choose it, but it's always there. At least to the believer, it's always available to us. You understand? Verse 25. And he released to them the one they requested, who for insurrection and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Barabbas. Very is little known about um, his name. His full name is Jesus Barabbas, incidentally. But we can gather the following from the gospel accounts. Taking all the gospel accounts all right, together, what you have this is Barabbas was a robber, he was a murderer, and he was an insurrectionist. He might have been, speculation, he could have been one of the zealots. You had your Sadducees, your Pharisees, your Herodians, your zealots, and your Essenes, your ba- five basic groups at the time. And the zealots were the insurrectionists. So it's possible that Barabbas was part of that. In law enforcement terms, we would say he certainly had a long rap sheet. But you know what's funny? In the Jesus movies, when I first became a Christian, I would watch all the movies on the Bible. And you always see Barabbas. They always pick this real big guy. He's got scraggly hair and wild eyes, tattered clothes. And he's, you know, 
He's got chains, and this is the picture of Barabbas. But that's the artistic interpretation, of course. But we, what do we know from the scripture? We know this. We know his name. Let's just break it apart. Jesus, okay, English name, come from the uh, Iesus, from the Greek, comes from Joshua or Yeshua from the Hebrew. Okay, it's all the same name. The word Joshua, a lot of Jewish boys, no doubt, were named this uh, after the great military leader in the Old Testament. Literally, Joshua or Yeshua means salvation. If it's uh, lengthened, so Yehoshua, uh, depending on if it was a contraction or the full name, it meant God is salvation. So there's his first name. His second name, Barabbas. Barabbas literally meant son of the father. Seems to be a very spiritual name. Now, this is only speculation, but maybe Jesus Barabbas was born into a uh, religious household, right? A spiritual household, and he took the wrong path. He might have had pastor's kid syndrome. I don't know. It's just speculation. Either way, at the time of Barabbas in his life, no doubt he heard about John the Baptist, okay? Everybody heard about John the Baptist. He could have taken that path towards spiritual revival, but Barabbas chose to join the bad boys, you know, the, the zealots, and take over Rome uh, for the Jewish nation by force. Spiritual path, I've got to tell you, is hard. It's hard for all of us because we have to deny ourselves and do what God wants us to do. A lot of times the physical is a lot easier. Look at Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, from all accounts, was probably a robust guy, takes out his sword, and, and you know what? Peter wasn't a coward. He, he was surrounded by uh, you know, all these people with staves and clubs. Peter was going to take on all of them to defend Jesus. When Jesus told Peter, put that sword back, you need to fight with spiritual weapons, Peter panicked and he fled because he didn't know fully had to do that. Okay? So let's just bring this back to Barabbas. He chose the route of taking the Jewish land by force. Now, let's compare Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ. As they would say in boxing, let's compare the tale of the tape. Jesus Barabbas was guilty. Jesus Christ was innocent. Jesus Barabbas had the worst reputation. Jesus Christ had the best reputation. Jesus Barabbas had a name implying closeness with the Father, but he walked away. Jesus the Christ was always in close synchronization with the Father. Jesus the Christ was always in harmony with the Father. Jesus Barabbas was guilty, and he's going to have all his charges dropped. Jesus the Christ was innocent, and he was going to have all the charges added to him that were not his. Does that bother you? Does it bother you when there's a miscarriage of justice? Does it bother you when somebody, who's, uh, somebody confesses to awful crimes and gets off on a court technicality? Does that bother you? It bothers me. Does it bother you when you find out that somebody who was really innocent and because of a problem, a glitch in the system, ends up in prison? Miscarriage of justice. It's offensive that Jesus Barabbas gets off scot-free and Jesus the Christ has to die in his place. But it offends strictly our temporal understanding, the here and now, right? The spiritual implications to it. What we have to realize in a way is, no offense, but you're Barabbas. You're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas was a type of us. Why? Because the Bible says that we all lost our way. It wasn't just Jesus Barabbas. The Bible tells us we're all in rebellion against God. We all fall into sin. We all, regardless of our titles and accomplishments and religious, religiosity, we've turned away. There is no, none righteous. No, not one, the Bible tells us. 
And we have the worst reputation because of sin. But all of us that are born again have allowed Jesus the Christ to take our place, okay, to take that punishment for us. He stood in our place. So when the Father sees us, he sees Jesus' reputation. When the Father saw Jesus on the cross, he saw the sins of the world put on Jesus Christ. So we, we switched with him. We're like Barabbas. All of our charges for not equaling God's perfection, the standard of perfection, have been dropped. Instead of the punishment we deserve, we get his unmerited love and blessings, which is grace. I want to give you an illustration on justice, mercy, and grace using an incident between my son and I. And I'm glad he actually did what he did, but as I tell you to it, you might find it humorous. My son, this was the year that when the snow fell, he liked to go outside and play in the snow. And for some reason, he really liked snowball fights. He liked to, you know, get me with the snowballs. And we had rules. And I said, Josiah, don't ever, ever hit somebody in the face with a snowball. I said, you could really hurt somebody. So these were our rules, and we used to have a lot of fun with the snowballs. Now, uh, the last snow day we had, we were playing outside, and he was about three feet from me, right? And I was distracted, and he stoops down really quickly and makes a snowball and picks it up, right? Now, I would never expect anything malicious from my little butterball, but <laughs> when you see his cheeks, they're like butter, you know? So I turn around, and he's got this, and I, you know, action is faster than reaction, he wings this snowball at me and hits me right in the eye. Splat! And it was, I, just, I could still feel it. The snow was dripping down my neck and everything, and my eye hurt. I was mad. <laughs> he looked at me, and he could tell from my expression that that wasn't a good idea. It was like that, uh-oh, look, right? Point-blank range, he gets me right in the eye. But you know what? God taught us a good lesson that day. And it's amazing how I was, going, I was going to react, how quickly God can put another thought in your head to kind of get, get you where you need to be. And uh, I said to my son, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And he thought, oh boy. I said, but it's on uh, mercy, it's on justice, mercy, and grace. I said, you know you've been warned about hitting people in the eye with a snowball. I said, you realize you could hurt somebody. He says, yes. I said, so justice would be if I spanked your butt and punished you because you hit me in the eye. Do you understand that? He said, yes. So I said, you know what that means? And he said, justice. And I said, absolutely. And I said, mercy would be if I decided not to punish you and just not punished you for this incident. You understand what that means? He goes, yes. And I said, do you know what it would be called if I didn't punish you, but instead I just gave you hugs and kisses and gave you a whole bunch of chocolate because you love to eat chocolate? He goes, no, what's that? I said, that's grace. Well, he got the point so well that a few hours had passed and we sat down for dinner and my son proceeded to recite to my wife the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. But, you know, God shows us grace. And I see in the, in the crowd, with, when they were yelling to crucify Jesus, okay, what I see in the crowd is the crowd is a picture of the world. Away with this man, Jesus. Give us Barabbas. They're religious people, <laughs> and they want a, a, an insurrectionist, murderer, whatever this guy was, they want him to be released, and they want Jesus to be crucified. It's a picture of the world. 
And I've done, really, Psalm 2 to death. I mean, in the last few services, you got to just go to Psalm 2. Well, not now, but when you go home, go to Psalm 2 and meditate on it. You see the rebellion, rebelliousness of the world and mankind against God's ways. Okay? Psalm 2, really meditate on that. But the world says, we don't want accountability. Away with this Jesus. The guy cleanses the temple. The guy holds us accountable. The guy, when we're trying to take money from little old ladies, he's telling us we're wrong. He, he opposes every one of us. And you know what? We've got a system going. We've got a marriage between church and state, between Rome and, and the religious system. We've got a good thing going on with the selling of the animals. Get rid of Jesus. Get him out of our hair. And that's the way the world is, even today. Get rid of Jesus. We don't want to hear about babies being aborted. We don't want to hear about um, partial birth abortion. We don't want to hear about corrupt government officials being held accountable. We don't want to hear about you know, poverty. We don't want to hear about that stuff. Get rid of the Christians, because they represent Jesus' message. And that's what we should be doing, representing his message. And I do, I ask you to pray for the governor, now that he's... Um, He's in serious condition. Um, you know, they did a few surgeries on him. I pray that while he's laying in that bed, uh, that he would just think about his eternal salvation. I pray that his, he would have a, a conversion of heart. So definitely pray for him. And we should be praying for our leaders. Verse uh, 26, and then we'll wrap it up. Luke 23, verse 26. It says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two other criminals, two others criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the left hand, on the right hand, and the other on the left. So what you see is you got this guy, Simon the Cyrenian. Now, Roman law uh, said that a soldier could come up to you with his weapon and tap you on the shoulder and say, you, pick up that cross for that man. Or tap you on the shoulder and say, carry my pack one mile. That's why in the beginning of uh, Matthew, Jesus says, if somebody compels you to go one mile with them, go two. He says, go over and above and show the love of God to these people. So the Roman soldiers could compel you to do something, right? So they probably tapped this guy in the shoulder and said, he, he can't carry his cross. Go help him with that cross, this guy in the crowd. Now, what do we know about Simon? Okay, his name, again, let's go with the name. Simeon, uh, Simon is the English of uh, Simon in Greek goes back to the Simeon in the Hebrew. Simeon was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's a nice Jewish boy with a nice Jewish name. His last name, or Simon of Cyrene, a Cyrenian. Cyrene was northern Africa. Now, he's in the city to celebrate the Passover. So most likely he's a Jewish man from Africa who's traveled a long distance to come and celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. So he's probably, no doubt he's Jewish. But in a short time, he was in contact with Jesus. It changed his life. Now, how do we know this? Because if you read Mark 15:21 and you read Romans, we see that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander. Who were they? They were notable people in the early church. So you see that 
his, this guy's brief encounter with Jesus had some type of effect on him, right? Now, the exchange with the women, Jesus lacked something. He lacked something that we all have, and that's self-preservation. Think about the pain from the whippings. Think about trying to stumble with that, with that cross. Think about um, just the beatings he took and the crown of thorns, just stabbing. Facial pain is so awful. And, and what does he do? He's talking to them like, you know, I'm going to pray for you ladies. And, you know, they were concerned for him. He was concerned for them. And what he was saying was that after his departure and that during the time of the Jewish Holocaust in A.D. 70 by Rome where a million Jewish people were killed and 800,000 were taken into slavery, uh, the times were going to be really tough, especially with the besiegement of Jerusalem before the Romans actually broke through. This is all history. Normally, barrenness was considered a curse, but Jesus said in this case, blessed are the barren, because this is going to be some really tough times. It was so bad that people actually resorted to cannibalism. When the Romans broke through, these hardened soldiers were actually horrified by what they saw when they broke through the city. It was an awful sight. In verse 30 and 31, he says, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what would be done in the dry? Now, there's another portion of Scripture in Revelation 6, 16, where that happens again. The people say, uh, let the mountains fall on us and crush us. And then the, the last thing that I want to point out here is the difference between the greenwood and the dry wood. And we talked a little bit about this. The greenwood, when wood is green, when a, a, a vegetation is green, it has water, it has life in it. Okay, It's, it's, it's supple, it's fresh. And there's a picture of water and moisture, Jesus as the uh, living water, right? the life-giving water. The dry wood, this is a world where Jesus is removed. The dry wood is devoid of moisture. When I go to, uh, in the wintertime, when I go to burn wood in my wood-burning stove, I look for dry, rotted wood uh, that, that's just, there's no water left in it because all it's good for is to be burnt. So you see the analogy being picked up here. Pilate. Barabbas and Simon all had some type of encounter with Jesus Christ, but they reacted in different ways. That's the key. Let's look at that. Pilate, his career ended with tragedy and instability and an ignominious recall to Rome in AD 36. History reveals that Pilate's decision to let Jesus be crucified didn't make things any better politically in Judea. History bears that out. As a matter of fact, it was a spiritual catalyst for the A.D. 70 destruction of Jerusalem. It was a bad decision that he made. Again, it was prophesied. God knew he was going to do it, but um, it was a bad decision. Barabbas? Anybody ever hear about Barabbas again? What he probably did was squandered his pardon by Pontius Pilate, probably ended up being killed by a Roman soldier. Where is he now? Simon, on the other hand, had a short encounter with Jesus Christ, and it appeared to be a life-changing experience for him and his children. What about you? Do you have a name or a title of a Christian? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you, do you do the circuit of the Christian churches and the Christian culture? But your life is evidence of just the opposite? Have you walked away from the Lord? Have you backslidden? Did you put your phone on vibrate today? Have you been blinded by sin in some way? Are you going through the motions, but you don't really know him? Would you like that to change? It can change for all of you. It can change for all of you. It can change for one of you. I don't, I know, I don't know who's saved and who's not saved. I don't know who's walking the, the, 
the, the label walk, but their heart isn't with it. But God's word, if you open up your heart and you really want him to come into your life, who cares about the Christian culture? It's about your individual relationship with Jesus Christ. So in your short time for being exposed to the Bible, in your, in your time of, of meeting Jesus through his word, are you ready to be changed? Let's pray. Are you going to